Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, along with my co-host, Andy Dolich. And today's guest is Steve Patterson. Steve, I, you know, you've got um, just as much experience as Andy in, in terms of uh, <laughs> having, having been in multiple leagues, um, college athletics. I mean, the list goes on. And so we'll, we'll dive a little bit into your background. Um, but most, most notably... Um, you know, being a college athletic director at multiple schools um, and president of multiple teams. And we'll dive into what it's like to ultimately report into an owner, report into a president of a university. Um, Some of the things that, you know, maybe those uh, trying to get into the industry just don't really see um, up at the top. And so with that, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jake. Uh, looking forward to it. Enjoying it. Howdy, Andy. Good to be here with you. It's great. And Jake, I would say that when our wives had gotten together at various league meetings, they'd look at each other and you could tell the thought bubble above their heads. Can these bozos ever hold a job <laughs> in any way, shape or form that we always have to move someplace? Uh, yeah, that's funny. Steve, Steve, start us off with kind of what got you interested in sports and then fast forward, you know, through your career and the different stops for us. Sure. Jake. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I started the way everybody starts in professional sports. I was, uh, 10 years old answering the phone for the Houston, excuse me, for the Milwaukee bucks, uh, before we had any furniture in the building yet. And my father was the, uh, president of the club, uh, there was a woman with a very thick uh, northern Wisconsin accent. She said, just just pick up the phone and say Milwaukee box and write down <laughs> the person's name and write down their phone number and then we'll call them back. Can you handle that? Sure. So I pick up the phone and this is in the old days when you had like, you know, six lines, each line sort of blinking and you just would push the next one. And so I push it and say Milwaukee box can I have your name and phone number? And she started screaming at me. She says, no, it's Milwaukee box. (laughs) What I said, she says, no, it's Milwaukee box, not Milwaukee box. It's like, okay. (laughs) So, you know, it's been all downhill since then. in in (laughs) When I couldn't supposedly announce the name of the team, right. But uh, like Andy will know about what great marketing we had back then in the, in the, uh, in the uh, late 60s, so that so the pre global days of the NBA actually, it was in the pre anything days of the NBA. Yeah, like we have a team where where is that team? Huh? I enjoyed for years being able to te- tease David Stern that I actually had been around the league longer than he had, but uh, right, the, <laughs> the, the marketing campaign was see the bucks for a buck that year. Now, that it tells you about how much ticket prices have changed and. And the uh, massively interesting uh, ad campaign, and then they had full page ads in the newspaper, and had a picture of this one player they'd taken in the expansion draft, and they said, "This fall, this man will play his heart out for you." He was the first guy cut in training camp, so <laughs> it didn't go over very well. But uh, after I got to be somewhat of an adult, uh, I joined the Houston Rockets as uh, their attorney, and the league was really changing at that time. David Stern was coming in uh, shortly after that as the as the commissioner, and 
you had Larry and and uh, and uh, Jordan and Magic, and wound up being the general manager and alternate governor, running that franchise uh, for a, for a number of years. We got a new owner, so when the new owner and the and the president don't get along, you move on. So I founded the Houston Arrows hockey team, which was an IHL team. Later, that team went into the AHL. We won a couple championships there. So it's fun bringing hockey back to Houston. We bought the arena, uh, which was called at that time uh, the Summit. We sold the naming rights, became Compact Center, and I got to have the Rockets as uh, as my tenant again. Um, from there, uh, joined Bob McNair's efforts to go after the NHL. We didn't get it, but we pivoted from there and went and got the NFL for Houston, beat out the contingent led by Michael Ovitz in Los Angeles uh, to win the franchise and built Reliance Stadium and and we got to host the Super Bowl, which everybody will kind of remember for Janet Jackson's uh, uh, clothing uh, mishap that she had. Oh, Justin Timberlake from Memphis, my boy JT. Yeah, right? there you go. Conspiring the to ripple, uh... the ripple with the nipple. I just <laughs> yeah. that. the ripple with the nipple. Oops. Yeah. I was I was having to take care of the county judge and a few other folks. I missed it till I got back and saw it on replay. Um, but. Uh, from there, was recruited to the Portland Trailblazers to be president and GM and alternate governor up there and run the arena and the radio stations and the basketball team for Paul Allen. Got recruited to Arizona State to be their AD after, after work for Paul up there. Got recruited to Texas to be their athletic director for a few years and uh, have run a consulting company uh, for, for years, pro sports consulting, and then uh, got called by the Arizona Coyotes to come uh, back to Phoenix and sort of clean that out and uh, help the team get sold. And so uh, uh, we've been in most of the leagues um, and uh, most of the sports uh, in North America over the years. Right. The only sport that Steve and I, I think, haven't worked in is cricket and (laughs) uh, the Ukrainian bobsled league. I think those are the two that I know. But two two important points here, Steve, that I was thinking about that very few people don't have. I mean, not that you were lucky. Uh, it was great. But to grow up in a family, I mean, with a dad that was in the business, most people never have that. A, a bit about that. And then as we were talking if, if I remember correctly, I mean, you had the entire Howe family in Houston. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was a major, major news story in the world of sports. But a bit about, you know, growing up, you said, you know, Milwaukee backs uh, <laughs> and, and your dad and his career and how that, you know, positively or negatively affected your vision of the business. Yeah, it really was kind of crazy because um, he was running a prep school called Whalen Academy in a little town called Beaverdam, Wisconsin. <clears throat> and uh, the school had invested uh, in the Bucks before because everything went public you know, very easily in those days. Um, and my father had invested in Al McGuire, who was the coach at uh, Marquette and, you know, very well known in, in the Midwest and particularly in Milwaukee you know, won a national championship at Marquette. He was supposed to be the original general manager and coach of the team. And at the last minute, the night before the Bucks were supposed to go public with, you know, a significant amount of my father's net worth and a significant amount of the prep school's net worth that, that were invested in it, Al couldn't get out of the contract to uh, 
be the coach at uh, Marquette and couldn't come over to the Bucks. So they had all night meeting and they literally talked my old man into being the president. Uh, he was only going to do it for a year. And he would hire a general manager and hire a coach and go back to being the headmaster at Wayland Academy. Well, you know, did that for a year. Next year, they won the coin flip, got Lou Elsinder, who was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and uh, uh, the rest was history. He, he spent 20-plus uh, years in the NBA. So, you know, I, I got a chance to be around the business a lot and watch that work. I mean, actually, it had an interesting time after we lost to uh, Philadelphia in the playoffs one year. We flew down on the owner's Learjet. And in those days, you're only required to have one pilot. And so we flew from Madison where we had to play the playoff games because we couldn't get into the arena in Milwaukee because of the boat show. It was more important than the Bucks playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we flew down, landed in Fort Lauderdale, and, the pilot, and we all went off to the houses that we were staying at. The pilot was supposed to turn around and fly to Cincinnati and pick up Oscar Robertson and his agent and fly him back down so we could do a deal to get Oscar Robertson to match him up with Kareem to put a championship team together. And as the guy was taxiing back out on the, on the tarmac, he had a heart attack and died. Oh and so, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, a couple of hours, either way, either we would have gone down. So or- that combo, which is one of the greatest combos that unless you're a basketball fan, you've, completely forgotten about in the fact that the human triple double in the big O, one of the five greatest players that I ever saw play. I never heard that story. Like yikes. Yeah. Yikes. Wow. So folks who put that team together and they won the championship uh, immediately. Oscar was the most, the most uh, intimidating guy I ever met. And, uh, but it was great just to be able to sit at the knee of my father and learn. We were a great, duo when we got to work together for nine years at the Rockets uh, you know his personality and style is very different than mine uh, you know he, he thinks if he thinks of something it's over and, and it's going to happen and and I was very good at implementing things I was a lawyer and uh, you know he had great people skills and and uh, uh, you know great bombast and he really was wonderful whenever we were in a negotiation you know, I sometimes have to call him in and, and go, look, we're not getting anywhere with this guy. I need you to come and throw a fit. And uh, you go, well, like, you know, it's like a 30-second fit or like a two-minute fit or five-minute fit. He's, I, you know, this guy, I think we can get him there. If it's about 45 seconds, just go totally crazy. And, and he'd come in and go totally crazy for about 45 minutes and storm out of the room. And I go, okay, you see what I got to deal with every day? Now, look, the owner is worse than him. <laughs> so, I'm so, thinking that David Stern might have learned it from your dad. Oh God, <laughs> they were so much fun to watch because they they'd be mfing each other back and forth over the phone like you'd never seen. But uh, yeah, so like you can make a deal with me, or you can deal with that crazy son of a bitch, you know, who's my father or the owner who's worse. And uh, so that was a lot. Of, we had a lot of fun playing good cops. So that was was that like Rudy T, Mike Newland, Calvin Murphy. Yeah, and then Green, yeah, Elvin, yeah. right? Aaron, Elvin Hayes. Yeah, holy and then, moly! And then all the way through to you know Ralph and Akeem and John Lucas and and the you know the the team that won it that I was that I put together uh, years yeah. later. What a bunch of personalities and what a bunch of incredible players, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody talks about and, smaller players, but Calvin Murphy, give me a break. Uh, he, he still looks like he'd go out and get you a dozen. Right, right, yeah. 
but you were right. I mean, we had the house you know, at the Arrows, and actually, uh, the owner of the team uh, wanted my father to go take that team over as well. He, he wouldn't do it, but I can remember in the summit walking in the locker room one night because we all worked together <clears throat> with the Arrows, and I looked up and I saw the best looking, best built, twenty seven year old guy. I've ever seen in my life. And I've been in a lot of locker rooms, you know, for 50 years in this industry. And the guy pulled the towel off his head and it was 52 year old Gordy Howe. It was just like, the guy was a beast. If, if anybody took one of his sons into the corner, Oh my God, you better look out. Cause the next shift down, that guy was going to get crushed against the glass by Gordy. I mean, what an amazing athlete uh, to be able to watch and to watch him be able to play, you know, that late. It really was something else. Uh, yeah, no, when you were mentioning that, I was thinking about Ricky Henderson. You know, so Calvin could probably only average 10 a game now if he was yeah. playing in the NBA. And Ricky would only hit 240 and steal 30 bags. But he he, and then who would be the other one? Like Bobby Hall. Like bodies by God. Yeah. You know, they weren't into training. I mean, Gordie Howe would like, yeah, I was on a farm and I picked up nine million bales of hay That's and what he threw said. a cow against the wall, right? That's exactly what he said. He never lifted a weight, but he, he threw hay bales all summer. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Steve, so at that point, I mean, you've seen how much the industry has changed, not only from the business side, but also the player side, right? And and yeah. and you, you talked about the Houston Arrows and um, – you know, when when you started with the with the Bucks, I mean the values right of those teams were nominal compared to what they are today. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how that's changed and, and what you've seen uh, to become that now? Yeah, I mean I think the expansion fee for the for for Portland and and Milwaukee and Cleveland I think was right around a million bucks or a couple million bucks. You know, now you got teams in the NBA selling for over $2 billion. You know, and, and I can remember begging Charlie Thomas not to sell the Rockets for 70-something million dollars. Because uh, a year later, teams were selling for 130 And, you know, four or five years later, they were selling for hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and like I said, I mean, the, the Rockets' recent trade was at $2.2 billion. You know, I can remember being with my father for years and thinking – and Andy, you probably thought the same. The ticket prices can't keep going up. The sponsorship deals can't keep going up. Right. Who'd be crazy enough to spend $50 to sit between the free throw lines down low? Yeah. Like, wow, that's ridiculous. And, and, and it just keeps going up along with the value of the franchise. I mean, the franchise has been appreciating it, you know, roughly 15% a year forever. You know, where else on the planet can you get returns like that? Not you know, the stock market. Not, not in a lot of places. Well, I was thinking when he was telling the story. So, you know, the market right now is crashing and there are there are a hundred people in the United States today going, you know, those hundreds of millions or billions that I have in the market. What a waste. I'm just going to buy a team. Yeah. Right. How much things cost like two to four billion. Get me one of those teams that just appreciates. And I could be part of a club that has very, very few members. And I'm a smart guy in business or woman. I'm going to turn this thing around. And that, you know, that valuation, there are literally more people 
you know, way more people in the Senate than there are in the NBA uh, Board of Governors. And you can't get in there easily. Money is not an object. Absolutely zero. Right. And then, and then you know, like I watched Bob McNair buying the Texans, and it's kind of like a, a hazing in terms of, you know, having to get everybody to want to let you in the club and going around and kissing the ring. I mean – we flew around to every NFL owner. I remember flying into Pittsburgh the day the last steel mill in Pittsburgh closed and watching people carry their boxes out of the last steel mill in Pittsburgh. And we were there to meet the Roonies. And if the Roonies, you know, if Rooney wasn't going to back you, you weren't going to get it. And then we flew to Tampa and uh, we drove by Cigar Factory. And I watched Bob McNair stop and get out. And just look at the factory. And so I he stood there for 15, 20 minutes. And so I finally got out of the limo and, you know, walked out and just said, you okay? I mean, like, you know, we should go to the meter. We, we got to meet the Glazers. And there was all these tears in his eyes. And he said, my father used to sweep the floors in huh. the factory when I was a kid. And then he got laid off from that job. And now I'm here talking to the Glazers about buying an NFL team. You know, it was like, wow, what an amazing American success story. Yeah, and, and there are so many of those stories, my time with the Niners. So Edward DeBartolo Sr. wanted to buy the White Sox. Yeah. And Bowie Kuhn, uh, it was like, well, I don't think we want too many vowel-ending names owning the Chicago White Sox. So, sorry, Mr. DeBartolo, you can't buy the team. And, and that was like, what? Huh? So, a few years later, he buys the 49ers for $18.5 million. <laughs> I think that's been a pretty good family investment yeah probably so yep or you know steve you've built buildings uh you've got a football stadium opening next year that will probably top out at six billion dollars like huh yeah even for inflation huh yeah no, i mean it's amazing that the what has to go into these facilities now you know, in terms of electronics and amenities and square footage and concessions. And I mean, it's, it's not like the old days of going to a game, you know, in, in the old ballparks or arenas or, or stadia. Uh, you know, these are palaces. You go to Jerry, Jerry Jones's place and, and you're right. The one that's getting built in LA. Oh my God, it's going to be better than Jerry world. Yeah. <laughs> Except for, you know, like we've seen it here with the Niners till they turned it around last year and the Warriors having this horrible season due to injuries to Steph and Clay and KD stepping away and going to Brooklyn. You know, good luck with that. Um, but people, you know, who had spent $10,000 on four season tickets in their previous buildings are now spending $100,000 in their four seats based upon their license or whatever it's called. And what I've noticed is when a team is not functioning, they just don't go and the tickets aren't sold in the secondary market. And it's like no big deal when they're good again, I'll show up. But my hundred K this year, eh, correcting error. I, I don't, I don't care. 
Well, yeah, it, and, it's and certainly Steve, not as rowdy as the old days in the Milwaukee arena or in Steve, no. <laughs> Steve, it's not only the pro sports too; it's college, right? I mean, you spent time in that realm, and and that's just as just, you know, growing just as fast as as pro sports. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, for the be- bigger schools with the best programs for the best seats, um, but you can still get in at a much more reasonable price to a collegiate uh, game than you can in the pros. But you're right. I mean, the, the movement that's happening now the last few years, and you're going to see it for a while coming is the improvement in the facilities in all the sports, football, basketball, hockey, baseball, all the Olympic sports that the big schools have. Yep. I mean, people are putting a lot of money into softball and baseball parks now. Uh, to drive revenue and have better amenities. You know, people have been spoiled. They're having too great of a, a, a time um, in the pro venues. And so you've had to push a lot of that down to the, along with, uh, you know, selling alcohol at, at those events, which, you know, I sort of was one of the first guys to do that. And, and uh, you know, now people realize the sky won't fall if you do that. And, you know, the fan needs to have a have an experience that uh, that they'll enjoy and a reason to come name, just- name, image, likeness, which will be fought through and and change the dynamic to a certain extent. I'd like you to speak for a moment. You know, everybody looks at the pros as Jake talked about, like, well, they have seat licenses, they have membership clubs, they're so far ahead of the game. When if you really understand anything about collegiate sports to get the best tickets for the two revenue sports, football and basketball, how much of a donation, right, has to be made at a yearly level at those schools, which would make some of the pro uh, PSLs pale in comparison, right? People don't really know that. And that's existed for a pretty long time right yeah i mean texas was one of the first schools that did that you know for instance if you want to buy a suite you know first you have to have donated a million dollars to the athletic department and so you know then you get to pay for the suite on top of it uh you know or if you want to sit in the best seats at at a lot of schools it's uh you know it could be three five ten thousand dollars in a donation and then the tickets on top of that so you know, now that's not true at every school, and certainly the the no. the, bu- the budgets vary dramatically from, you know, the big Power Five schools and the Big Ten and, and the Big Twelve and and the SEC and the ACC and to a certain extent the, the Pac twelve, um, but you know the smaller schools struggle and can't generate that kind of revenue, and so I think you're right. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with name, image, and likeness. I think the one that nobody is talking about and it's coming and the schools are sort of not ready to think about is gambling. I mean, just, yep. just as you've seen it in the pros, it's coming to college. The, there's going to be a lot of administrators in athletics and out of athletics on the main campus and lots of professors that aren't going to like it, but it's coming. So, yeah, I'm reading a book. I'm reading a book now. Uh, here's our weekly book recommendation. There's a book called The City Game, and this isn't Pete Axthelm's great book of 40 years ago. This is the deep dive into the City College of New York, um, you know, scandals of the 50s when City College of New York was the only school ever to win the NIT and the NCAA in the same year. 
and that was before the NCAA was March Madness. Right. But um, that was all point shaving. And, you know, you're still dealing with college kids. So that's going to be a butte in terms of the morality of college athletics. Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be an interesting battle to watch, you know, from the sidelines. <laughs> Steve, from from a from a sports perspective, you know, pro and college, are we at a point right now where there's just more going on than there really ever has been in terms of I mean, you talked about the gaming, the name and image likeness, the different media deals, the stadiums, the facilities. I mean, it seems like there's just more and more and more that's going to consistently change at, you know, at a faster rate. I, I think that's true of all business and all of society. I mean, I'm reading a book right now, the, the, the future is faster than you think. And, you know, it's all about that kind of acceleration that's going to happen in healthcare and advertising and business, no matter what, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of what drives it in the college space is, the necessity of keeping up with the Joneses. Um, you know, if Ohio state's going to, you know, have a budget over 200 million bucks and Texas is going to have a budget over 200 million bucks, the other schools are going to have to try to keep up. And there are different models for that. Uh, it can be big donors like a Phil Knight or a Boone Pickens. It could be uh, big student bodies like a ASU and, and student fees. It can be, a significant number of donors that are making donations from the small level all the way up to the huge level. Uh, but more and more you, schools are going to have to do the things they need to do to generate the revenue to keep up. Cause you know, if, if the, if the alumni are not happy first, they go after the coach, then they go after the AD and the next third person they go after is the president of the school. So they're going to do it. <laughs> keep those folks happy. Well, and Jake, we could we could be named the most erudite podcast in sports. You have two people here who are reading books. <laughs> Steve and I, I think that's breaking news. I, I would two agree. Senior executives, two senior executives who've actually reading books. Well, everything is everything's what podcasts, social media, digital media analytics and metrics like you like to say Andy right I mean it's it's there is reading I you know I actually picked up a book the other day too so I'm going to count myself I'm going to count myself in there uh shout out shout out to the uh new advanced book by Corn Ferry so there you go uh it's it's interesting um so Steve one 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 thing you know as we draw try and draw parallels and and provide some insights on this podcast about um you know things that that maybe you don't see uh you know from the from the 50,000 foot view um working in sports or you know for those that are trying to get into sports what's the biggest difference being an AD reporting into a president versus being a president of a pro organization reporting into an owner well for the most part in the pros um you generally have one owner uh and so as long as he's satisfied or she, uh, with your performance, uh, you're generally okay. And, and you know, you wind up taking a lot of bullets for the owner, uh, with the press, with the sponsors or, or, or others, ticket holders, fans often. Um, but that's just a part of the job. I think that people understand uh, if they're sitting in that position and 
you know, the reality is, is you, you probably spend 30, 35% of your time managing the owner and the people around him. And the wealthier they are, the more people around them they have that uh, get up every day and, and try to convince them that there's a huge uh, plague of locusts coming over the horizon that's going to leave them butt naked, bankrupt, and impotent. And they're the only individuals on the planet that can uh, save them from this horrible fate. Uh, and the more billions they have, the more people like that they, they have around them. You know, the other thing that can be tricky in the pros, if you got a lot of limited partners, particularly if they have a big, uh, a big percentage in ownership in the team, the, the huge difference between the pros and college in terms of managing up is there are so many more constituent groups on a university campus. It's really not just the president. It's the president or, or chancellor. It's the, the board of regents. It's the faculty council. It's the faculty athletic representative. Uh, it's the press. It's the alumni. It's the donors to the rest of the campus. So there's. It's the conference. It's the state legislature. Yep. It's the boosters above the board. It's the boosters below the board. Yep. It's the Nobel Prize winners. Yes. Holy way more complicated yeah so it's a much more uh complicated uh convoluted environment to operate in versus having an owner andy did you know from from your time in pro sports what was the biggest challenge that you had um as you progressed through your career to then realize i know you've told your, your story of um you couldn't be president until you're president right and then once you get there, right. did anyone teach you like how to deal with owners? You, it's learning on the job. I think Steve might agree. Yeah. There, there isn't a book because again, all of these owners, men or women, groups of people are unique forces of nature, good, bad, and indifferent. And you have to be able to to basically navigate your way through that. You should be an observer. And there's so many people who are way smarter than me who don't spend much time listening anymore because of where they went to school, their multiple capabilities, and they just miss the simple stuff. Um, and, and that is every once in a while when you shut up and listen to what the owner is saying, or observe the owner and what drives you know him or her. So no, I can't say that that it was anything other than observing what I thought were the, the most positive parts of how they ran an organization and those that were not so great. The one area that I've seen and haven't worked in the last few years in the business and and steve might agree or disagree but owners let's say it's a primary owner they always seem to have a representative that's either their chief financial officer of their mega company or their chief legal officer and that person is usually a no good sob <laughs> who doesn't want the owner to be in that business 
will come into an organization and, and rip the crap out of it. And then at the end of the day, will become addicted to the sport, even though he's firing people on a monthly level and ask you, the, the president or the CEO, hey, could you get me in the locker room? Could I sit down over there next to so-and-so? And you just sort of shake your head. This is somebody that's, that's wiping people out um, and representing the owner and looking for every possible in, yet um, has the, the force of nature of negativity. I don't know if you saw that, Steve. Yeah, I've I've seen that. I, I mean, I I think the interesting thing is that owners have to learn how to be owners, um, and the management has to learn how to deal with the owner. At the end of the day, it's the owner's company, but they all come into the sports business from their own background, and they all bring different strengths and weaknesses, and so. You know, while Charlie Thomas at the Rockets was probably the least wealthy owner I had on a certain level, you know, so we didn't, you know, we couldn't go out and outspend the Lakers and the Knicks. Um, on a certain level, he was really good because he knew if his dealership down in Galveston didn't sell any cars last month, we weren't going to sell because there was a recession going on. We weren't going to sell any season tickets in Galveston County either. You know, so he had a good pulse on, on the company, uh-huh. you know, where, yeah. whereas, you know, other guys can be super wealthy. Um, you know, Paul Allen, who I worked for, one of the wealthiest guys on the planet, um, loved the team, loved to be involved on the player side, but, you know, didn't have an appreciation for sort of the business community and uh, a lot of the general public uh, in Portland. Andy was surrounded, like Andy was talking about, by people that didn't want to allow that to happen. And so, you know, I can remember uh, we had a we had a reunion of season ticket holders who had been season ticket holders for thirty years or more. And you know, I was talking with him before the game in his in his suite, and I said, you know, you want to come down and talk to these folks? And he says, no, they told me I can't. Meaning his PR people, they haven't prepared a speech for me, and they don't want me to go. I said, well, then, okay, I, I got to go down and talk to them because they're all here, you know, and somebody's got to talk to them for the franchise. So I go walking down there just as I'm getting, you know, talk to a few people beforehand, just as I'm getting ready to get up on the, on the stage, I feel somebody tap me on the back and I turn around there. It's Paul. He says, is it okay with you if I talk? I said, well, of course, you own the team. Come on. <laughs> you know? So, you know, he never, he never spoke without being scripted, but he got up on that stage that time. And this was people that had been 30 year or longer season ticket holders. So most of the folks in the room were older, you know, uh, a lot of senior citizens. And he got up and told the story of the first time he ever went to the Memorial Coliseum with his mother, who was fading, who had Alzheimer's at the time, and how welcoming everybody was, how well they treated her and how much he appreciated that. And he started pointing in the crowd and pointing out, I remember you, Mary and the time you brought my mom cookies. And I remember you, Bob, you know, the time you brought us some fish you caught and we cooked it up and it was great. And he started telling these stories just off the cuff. And by the time he was done, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And so, you know, you can see guys that get, that have a personality there. And when they allow it to come out, you know, can be really successful. But, you know, like Andy was talking about, a lot of times they're surrounded by folks 
whose career depends upon not allowing them to have real honest who I am I invented the plastic flange like okay great yeah Uh, the team's been in fifth place uh for the last eight years under your ownership that flange is really working out well huh (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah Steve I was I was thinking when you were going through your history if you're flying someplace and and you're talking to your seatmate and explaining your guys. Tell me your story. What have you done? And you finish. The guy gets off the plane. I've had this too. And the guy's wife says, "Hey, did you have a nice flight?" Yeah, I was sitting next to a guy who made up the greatest story I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of what he did as an adult, well, the guy is he's guy certifiable. But boy, it was really fun to listen to him. <laughs> Nobody would ever believe it, right? At least of all you. Yeah, I mean, I never planned any of my career. I never said, you know, I want to be in a certain place by a certain time. But, you know, Bob McNair years ago said to me, you know, if you can create value for people, you'll always have a job. And so, you know, I just worked real hard trying to create value for people and have a successful organization and, you know, scheme up ideas, steal ideas from Andy or John Spolster or somebody else in the business, and, you know, try to try to move the organization forward. And, you know, when we did, we had success and sometimes they worked and sometimes they crashed and burned. But, you know, I had the chance to, to take a chance and a lot of times they worked and it was a lot of fun. Jake, as we sort of end this one, you know, I'm thinking if we just added up all the jobs and teams that everybody has worked for that we've had on the podcast so far, that would be, I don't know how to define that number, but it would either be the most laughable number of all time <laughs> or, wow, that's pretty impressive. I, those those men and women worked uh, in every sport in every continent, in every event, in every building, that would be pretty impactful. You know, we're, we're almost at episode 100, and I, we, it, it might be possible. We can do, we can do some math. Um, yeah, put some youngin' on that. You, yeah. Don't we have some young? Yeah, yeah put yeah, a youngin' on that. Um, Steve, as we wrap up this episode, I, I, I got to ask, you know, you, you just, you talked about, you know, creating value, and, and earlier in the episode, you said sometimes when, um, things don't work out and the owner doesn't like you, you're gone, right? And so you, you not only do you have successes uh, by creating value, but then you also have your failures. What's maybe one of those, one of the things that you've learned through your career from the failures um, that's been most valuable to you? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think at times, uh, I, I've, I've tried to do the right thing. Um, and it wasn't necessarily what the owner or somebody else wanted. And uh, perhaps I've been too honest or too blunt or trying to move an organization along faster than uh, they otherwise would have wanted. And, you know, in those instances, then sometimes you get asked not to stick around any longer. Um, but I think from all of them, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the owners I worked with, <clears throat> the bosses I've had. And at the end of the day, um, I think you have to decide a lot of times, particularly in this industry or other high profile positions, 
you know, whether you're going to be true to your core self and your core beliefs or you're going to compromise that. And, you know, I have not been willing to compromise that. And so sometimes I've, you know, not stayed where I was, but I don't I don't regret that at all. No, that's great. Andy, any last comments? No, just I, I was adding it up. Steve and I have worked for 73 different sports organizations. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but we haven't caught, we haven't caught Todd Lewicki yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, we won't go there. Uh, but I would say that, that, and I hope the listeners hear this, the friendships that are developed in this industry are really important. And no matter what level of intellect that you have or multi-capable whiz-bang stuff, it is all about a team sport and working together. And as Steve said, he didn't have a plan. I surely haven't. And many of the others that we've talked to. But how lucky we've been to interact with so many incredible men and women over such a long period of time in the business of sports. And it sounds a little hokey, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, that's a long time ago, a friend of mine actually just had a heart attack and died last week, said to me, Patterson, I don't know how much money we're gonna make doing this, but I tell you what, we're gonna eat good, we're gonna have some fun, and we're gonna have some goddamn good stories to tell. And that's been really true. And that's the only reason that life in the front office exists. So, Steve, <laughs> thanks. We'll, we'll speak to you soon. Okay, thanks.